Oh, most beloved of Christ and God. Let's see what the Lord has for us today. Leviticus 16, 1 to 5, and then I'm going to change from 29 to 34. The title is The Day of Atonement. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most high place, excuse me, most holy place behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover, on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with the linen undergarments next to his body, he was to lie, tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Verses 29 to 34. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all of the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Thank you. Please be seated. We're in a series of messages right now called The Blood of the Cross. As we approach the great celebration of Good Friday and Easter, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And Christianity really is centered around that twin event. And we could say accurately that the entire New Testament is an exposition or unpacking of the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians, for example, twice says that the center and the substance of his message was the crucified Jesus. And it's not just that the crucifixion was an event in the life of Jesus, or even an event, a significant event in biblical or Christian history, but that the death of Jesus actually did something, that it accomplished something for us. 
When the apostles in the New Testament would teach about the significance of Jesus' death, they would often use the words blood or cross as synonyms for his death. For example, in Romans 5, verse 9 and 10, we read these two statements, that we have been justified by his blood and we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So those two ideas are synonymous. To be justified by Jesus' blood and reconciled to God through Jesus' death mean the same thing. Ephesians 1, we have redemption through Jesus' blood. Ephesians 2.16, we were reconciled to God through the cross. Hebrews chapter 10, in a passage I'll come back to later, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, and so on. Redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, it all comes to us by the death, by the blood, through the cross of Jesus. And in understanding the significance of the death of Jesus, the New Testament writers, and even Jesus himself, interpreted the crucifixion according to an Old Testament framework. They recognized what Jesus' death meant because he had pictures from the Old Testament that helped him to recognize what was going on. When I was in college, my college roommate was a skydiving instructor. And he believed that throwing oneself out of a perfectly good airplane was a fun thing to do. And eventually he persuaded me to give it a try, and I did. And it was one of the funnest things that I've ever done. Now, before one's first jump as a skydiver, one needs some instruction. And we sat through, as a class, several hours of teaching. And then we went outside to practice the jump. And what they had done was built a... um, a partial plane on the ground. It had kind of the, the, the body of the plane, part of it, the hole where the door should have been if the plane had had a door, the wing and the struts, etc. And they called it a mock-up. And we would go out to the mock-up. We would get in the plane and kind of climb out and practice how we were to hold and those kinds of things so that when we were, we were in the air and it was time to actually do it, we would know what it was like because we had been in the mock-up and we had seen it before. The Old Testament, in some ways, built mock-ups of the crucifixion. Images, pictures. So that when the real thing happened, when Jesus actually died, the disciples knew that in some ways they had seen this before. And they came to understand what it meant, what was really happening when Jesus died. And we've been looking at some of these Old Testament pictures over the last week, some of these mock-ups. In considering the blood of the Lamb, we went back to Exodus 12 and the story of the first Passover. From the Passover, we get much of the New Testament imagery of the blood of the Lamb. Jesus as the Lamb of God. Our understanding of Jesus as our substitute sacrifice dying in our place and bearing on himself the wrath of God and judgment for our sins. But that's not all that the death of Jesus means. So we also went back to Exodus 19 through 24, those five chapters. The covenant that God makes with Israel, and especially the ceremony in chapter 24 by which that covenant was ratified. So Moses talked about the blood of the covenant. And Jesus used of his own death the phrase, the blood of the covenant. 
And by the blood of the covenant, God binds himself to his people and binds his people to himself. And in Jesus' death, God was forging a relationship, an eternal relationship with his people. But that too doesn't capture all that Jesus' death means, and nor does it exhaust the Old Testament framework. So today we turn again to Leviticus chapter 16. Now the book of Leviticus is the place usually when people who are trying to read through the Bible in a year get kind of stuck and discover that a certain amount of discipline will be needed. Leviticus is a book almost entirely devoted to the religious facet of the worship of the Israelites. All of life is worship. Part of that is the religion around um, around God and the practices of Christians, and in that case, the Israelites. Descriptions, instructions about their religious festivals, their sacrifices, uh, the account of the ordination of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood, various rituals for various things, and so on. This is all the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus chapter 16, we read about the great day of atonement. You might have heard of it by its Hebrew name, Yom Kippur. You'll see that on your calendars. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was and is the high holy day of Judaism. It was the one day in a year on which the high priest actually approached God on behalf of the whole nation and stood in God's literal physical presence and the priest would make atonement for the sins of the people. And unlike our high holy days of Christmas and Easter, marked by feasting and celebration, the Day of Atonement was, by contrast, a day of fasting. It was a heavy, kind of awe-filled day. It was a day of sacrifice and a day of blood. It was an annual reminder of the infinite gap that exists between a sinful people and a holy or perfectly pure God. Now, sacrifices happened throughout the year as well. Animals were slaughtered and burned in the altar, and the life of the animal became, as it were, payment for the sins of the people. And it was substitutionary, again, to be sure, the life of the animal given in place for the life of the person. But these regular ongoing sacrifices were a stark and graphic reminder of the horrific nature of sin. And that the appropriate payment for sin is death. And that atonement, forgiveness, comes only with the shedding of blood. But the sacrifice on the day of atonement was different. And that only on the day of atonement was the blood of the sacrifice carried into the Holy of Holies before the very throne, the ark, the throne room of God. See, the tabernacle and later the temple consisted of three parts. The outer courtyard, where the sacrifices occurred. A room called the holy place, where the daily ministries of the priesthood took place. And intercession and prayer and incense. And then the holy of holies, or the most holy place. In the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant. And God himself had said that he would dwell above the ark in the cloud of his glory. And so the Holy of Holies was God's place. And the ark, the very representation of God's literal, physical, actual presence. In a very real sense, God was there. 
And there was a thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place and the rest of the temple and the rest of the tabernacle. Nobody was permitted to go in or even look in to the Holy of Holies. Because that would be presumptuous for a sinful person to enter into the presence of a holy God. The only exception to this rule was the high priest who could enter the Holy of Holies but only once a year on the Day of Atonement and with the blood of the offering. With the other sacrifices, the blood was sprinkled on the altar in the courtyard or sprinkled before the curtain in the holy place. But on the Day of Atonement, the blood was brought into the Holy of Holies to atone for sin in God's very presence. And the ceremony of that day was very involved, took a long time, and it looked like this. The high priest would bathe and then dress, not in the richly ornamented robe of the priestly uniform, but in a simple linen undergarment and then a linen tunic. This is a picture of the fact that complete and perfect cleanness, righteousness, is necessary in order to approach God. And the priest would first sacrifice a bull or a ram for the sins of himself and of his family. And he would take incense with him and take the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. The blood he would sprinkle onto the lid of the ark and then sprinkle the blood seven times in front of or before the ark. That is, before God. And by the priests doing this, God would then say that the priest and the priest's family's sins were now atoned for, or literally were covered. And the idea is that instead of seeing the high priest in his sinfulness, God would see the blood and see that an acceptable sacrifice for sin had been made. Now, in a sense, the Day of Atonement hasn't started yet. This is all preparatory. Now the priest is ready. His sins have been atoned for, now he is in a position to mediate for the sins of the people. He is considered clean in the sight of God. So now he goes back out. He takes two goats, and they cast lots to see which one of these goats will be sacrificed. And he will do with this goat what he has already done with the bull. But this time it's for the sins of the people. He will sacrifice it. He will re-enter the Holy of Holies with the incense and the blood. He will sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on and before the ark. On his way out, he will sprinkle more blood on the altar of incense just outside the Holy of Holies. The altar of incense is where the priests would pray for, intercede for the people before God and intercede on behalf of them. And by sprinkling, sprinkling the blood on the altar of incense, the priest was symbolically purifying it from defilement of the people's sins and thus making their prayers, the prayers of the priesthood, um, acceptable to God. Then the priest would go outside, take the second goat called the scapegoat. He would lay his hands on it and confess over it the sins of the people, symbolically transferring the sins from the people onto the goat and then the goat would be led away into the wilderness and released. Taking, as it were, the sins of the people away. Then the priest would undress, bathe, and put his regular priestly clothes back on. 
Then he would sacrifice two rams, again, one for himself, one for the people. Where the bull and the goat were sin offerings, the rams were burnt offerings, which means that the people and the priest, they were consecrating themselves again fully to God. The fire consuming the offerings symbolized the fact that God was accepting the offering. And finally then, the Day of Atonement and the rituals of the day were completed. The sins of the priest atoned for, the sins of the people atoned for before God and sent away from the people, and the priest and the people once more consecrating themselves to God as his people. It was a full day affair, as you might imagine. It takes five minutes to describe it. It took a whole day to perform it. And it happened but once a year. But it was on this day, more than on any other day, that the people knew that their sins were forgiven and that their relationship with God was intact and secure for another year. Now, the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement are, in one sense, uh, reminiscent of the Passover, the provision for a substitute sacrifice, the innocent giving its life for the sake of the sinful, the, the sprinkling of the blood as a sign to God that the wages of sin, which is death, has been paid. But there is an element of the Day of Atonement, the meaning of which becomes increasingly clear as the Bible progresses and comes to its fulfillment in the book of Revelation. But we need to start at the front end in Genesis. Now, I know that my tendency in sermons is to be more of a teacher than a preacher. This is one of those times. I want to I open our eyes to something that threads through the scripture that maybe we haven't thought of before and actually became just aware of in my own reading pretty recently. In Genesis chapter 1, we see the big picture of God's creation of heaven and earth and of people made in God's image. And God's pronouncement of it all is that it is good. In chapter 2, we go back to the creation of man and woman again, this time zooming in a little bit and seeing it in some more detail. And the pronouncement at the very end of this chapter is this. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a statement about the openness, the intimacy of their relationship. But it also sets the stage for something that will define humanity and religion for thousands of years. I'll get to it in just a second. In Genesis 3, you have the account of the fall into sin from which humanity has never recovered. Satan, in the form of a servant, serpent, tempts Eve to disobey God. God has loved and blessed Adam and Eve. God is Lord, but he is a good Lord. And Adam and Eve are to relate to him as such. And their fullest possible life, the greatest contentment, the deepest joy, is to be found in their ordering their lives under the loving lordship and the good word of God. But Satan causes Eve to question whether God actually does love them and has their best interests at heart. And she decides, and Adam who is with her also decides, not to trust the God that they know, but to trust the serpent. So they reject God's lordship. They disobey him. And in that instant, in that moment, their relationship with God, built upon love and trust, as all relationships are, 
is fatally ruptured. The germ of sin has entered humanity, and soon it will so completely infect humanity that everyone is absolutely consumed with selfishness and pride, rebellion, violence, and so on. And the, the early chapters of Genesis portray that vividly. And back to Genesis 3. The Bible recounts the very first sin, Genesis 3, verse 6, with these words. So when the woman saw that the tree of The tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's humanity's first ever act of sin against God. The very next thing the Bible says is this, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The very first human response to sin is the sense of shame and the desire to cover themselves up. No longer naked and unashamed, now they feel shame and they want to cover their nakedness. And from here on in, in the Bible, there is this symbolic link between clothing and the need to deal with sin. Nakedness becomes a picture of the guilt and the shame of sin, and clothing becomes a picture of how our guilt and shame needs to be dealt with, how our sin needs to be covered up. And it happens in Scripture again and again. And in Genesis chapter 3, later in the chapter, Adam and Eve's attempts to hide their sin and shame is woefully inadequate. I mean, how pathetic are leaves? And the Lord then makes for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothes them. Already you see God taking initiative to cover the effects of sin, to cover their nakedness and their shame. And already we see that it happens at the expense, at the cost of blood. An animal gives its life so that Adam and Eve may be clothed. And there you see the first hint of what we'll see many times in the scripture. A Passover, in the covenant ceremony, in the Day of Atonement, in the whole sacrificial system, the idea of the substitute sacrifice, the innocent giving its life so that the guilt and shame and sin of the sinner may be addressed. If the sin of people is to be covered, if they are to be appropriately dressed, it means sacrifice, it means the shedding of blood. Sin is that serious. And on the Day of Atonement, before the priest can enter the presence of God or even begin to perform his ministry on behalf of the people, the priest must take off his priestly garments and put on a simple white linen undergarment and tunic. He clothes himself, as it were, in cleanliness. Again, it's a visual reminder that perfect purity, perfect moral cleanness is required in order to stand in the presence of God. Psalm 24 asks the question, who can stand in the Lord's holy place? And it answers the question, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, he who has done no wrong and who harbors no wrong within him. And on the Day of Atonement, the priest even had to take off his priest uniform in order to put on the white 
linen. It's not his role as priest. It's not his religious function that allows him to enter God's presence. It's not the religious heart that stands before God. It is the pure heart that stands before God. Religion is like Adam and Eve's fig leaves. Man's attempt to clothe himself, to dress up a sinful heart. But it never works. Isaiah 64 verse 6 captures it, I think, perfectly. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We can and we do dress up our hearts to cover the shame of our sin with good deeds, with moral living, with religion, and even with church. But the very, the very best that we have to offer, our most selfless acts, our most sacrificial involvements, our most noble deeds, when set beside the very perfection of God, are just a different shade of filthy. There is only one heart in history and the cosmos whose purity can satisfy the holiness of God, and that is the heart of God. There is only one appropriate covering for our sin, and it is perfection. And nobody is perfectly righteous but God himself. We were once perfectly righteous. But when through Adam sin entered human existence, it stained forever. In Shakespeare's great tragedy, Macbeth, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth conspire to gain the throne by the murder of King Duncan. But Macbeth feels guilty and laments that an ocean could never wash away the guilt of the shedding of King Duncan's blood. And Lady Macbeth, his wife, mocks him for feeling guilty over what they have done. But in her famous sleepwalking scene, she walks around incessantly rubbing her hands in her sleep, imagining that she sees a spot of Duncan's blood and she cannot remove it. The guilt of sin cannot be washed by an ocean of our so-called righteous acts or religious observances. The spot remains. And like Adam and Eve, who needed to be clothed by garments provided for them by God at great cost, so human sin, if it is to be covered, must be covered by an act of God. There's a profoundly powerful picture of this in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, a book we don't go to very often. In chapter 3, the prophet Zechariah sees a vision. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this, Joshua, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, Joshua the priest, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is the only hope that anyone has. For God to replace our filthy garments, for God to replace our pathetic fig leaves, with the pure garments, the garments of sacrifice, to clothe us with 
pure vestments of righteousness to remove our sin and to grant us righteousness. Then Jesus came. And he died on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And after his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God his Father, when his followers began to joyfully proclaim and teach what God had done in Jesus, they started to say things like this. Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its sinful desires. Galatians 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ Jesus. You've clothed yourselves in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, and this is great, 22 to 24. You were taught in Jesus, you were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians chapter 3, 9 to 14. Again and again, this kind of language is being used. Colossians 3, 9 to 14. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, or clothe yourselves then, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There was now a new clothing. There was a new covering. It was possible now to put on Jesus and to clothe ourselves with his character. No longer attempts to fig leaf our sin, but a garment of righteousness not only provided by God, but the garment was, is God. God the Son, Jesus Christ. A new character that does satisfy the perfect righteousness of God because it is his character. And it's not that I have become like Jesus. Anyone who knows me knows that I am not perfect. But the character of Jesus covers me, clothes me. And when I approach God, God does not see me in my sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus with which I am covered, and I am acceptable to him. Theologians talk about the difference between imparted righteousness and imputed righteousness. God has not imparted Christ's righteousness to me. That is, God does not now accept me because I am righteous like Jesus. God has imputed Christ's righteousness to me. 
And God accepts me because Jesus is righteous. God doesn't make me good enough to stand before him. I stand before God on the basis of the goodness of Jesus. His clean hands. His pure heart. You can think of it this way. God doesn't give me enough. God doesn't enable me to earn enough money to buy a ticket to heaven. God gives me the ticket. But there is more yet. Even to say, God does not make me righteous like Jesus, is only partially true. Sure, I still sin, and sure, I am certainly not like Jesus. But there is a seed planted within. A new character has been born, an infant Christ-likeness that needs to grow into maturity. There is the germ of God's character Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, wisdom, purity, righteousness. There is a germ of God's character that gets cultivated. And God's agenda is, in fact, to conform me to the likeness of Jesus. And when we get to the book of Revelation and the Apostle John's amazing vision of, among other things, heaven itself, we read some startling things. Things that harken back both to the Garden of Eden and to the Day of Atonement. And we might expect to read in Revelation that God has made us as we were first created to be. That once again we would be naked but without shame. Our sinlessness restored. But that is not what we see. What do we see? Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that nobody could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then down to verse 14, I said to him, the angel, Sir, who are these people? Well, the angel says, who are these people? And I said, sir, you know who they are. And the angel said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Later in chapter 19, I love this stuff. Description of the wedding banquet of Christ and his church. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, his people, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And finally, the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. God's people for eternity will always be clothed, but we will be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And the somewhat startling picture is that the blood, the death of Jesus, is what makes our clothing clean, our robes white. So here is Eden, not restored, but surpassed. God clothing his people 
by the sacrifice of the innocent, not just clothing, clothing their bodies with the skin of the animal, but clothing their very heart and character with the heart and character of Jesus. Here are the two images of the Day of Atonement brought together and fulfilled. The blood of the sacrifice is atonement for sins, the clean linen, the purity necessary to stand before God, but they're not two separate things but brought together, and the blood of the sacrifice is what makes clean. If you are counting on anything to make yourself able to approach God, your goodness cannot outweigh even a single sin. You just can't do it. The single sin has so polluted and stained us so absolutely that a lifetime of morality and goodness cannot outweigh it. We have so completely violated the perfect righteousness of God that only his perfect righteousness can make us better, can make us clean. If you have not yet done so, Wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. Or, put in a more simple way, just plunge yourself into Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other way to be cleansed, to stand before God. If you have done that and you know that you're a Christian and you have already put your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus for you, then quit trying to earn it after the fact. Quit trying to live up to it. Don't try to earn the grace after it has been granted to you. But instead, live from it. Don't move toward the grace of God. But stand on it and live from there. It's a completely different way of thinking. Such freedom, such confidence to be in relationship with God. And so give thanks. Hebrews chapter 10, I said I would come back to this. Verses 19 to 22. Kind of brings together the imagery of the Passover and the blood of the covenant, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and the Day of Atonement. And it says this to us. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, his death. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And that is the invitation to everybody in the room. If you've been a Christian for 80 years or you are not a Christian yet, the invitation is to boldly approach God based solely on the blood of Jesus, the only vehicle by which you are made clean and washed spotless in God's sight. Let God impute to you the righteousness of Jesus. Don't try to bring your own. Don't try to bring your own. Are you?